Well, happy 5th of November. I love this time of year, Christmas on the horizon, bonfire night, just love it. How many of you were at a fireworks thing last night? Anyone at a bonfire? Yeah, a few of you, a few of you. We had a little one at home um, with our, I've got two little boys, Reuben and Ezra, so we had a little bonfire and um, five rockets, which they were actually terrified of, which was a shame, but, um, but it reminded me of a, um, of a fireworks party I attended um, as a youth, so a while ago now. Um, but we'd gone around someone's house, and um, there was a bonfire and there were fireworks, and um, we, um, we had hot dogs and hot chocolate and all the stuff that you should have at a, at a bonfire night, at a fireworks party. And um, all was going well until we had one of those, you know, um, you get these um, rockets, it's like 10 rockets in one, and they just sort of just go off one after each other. Do you know the ones? And um, the youth leader uh, lit the fuse, and, um, and then my, me and my friends were all sort of standing not too far away, just watching. And to our horror, as we watched the flame go up the fuse, we saw it lose balance and fall directly facing us. And it was one of those horror moments. I can't even really remember uh, clearly what happened, except for it felt like slow motion. We all hit the deck, screaming, hot chocolate, sausages everywhere, as these fireworks narrowly missed us and shot across uh, just above our heads. And uh, I remember us getting up um, with this sense of newfound perspective on life and the value of our lives. It felt like a near-death experience and we emerged with a new sense of the value of our lives. And I wanted to talk this morning about value, what we value. It's been on my mind because my wife and I were in the midst of moving house, so we've been uh, refurbing a a house that we've now moved into. And um, there's 101 different little things that you're focusing on, decisions you've got to make, things that are grabbing your attention. Um, you know, sleepless nights over, over whether or not we should use clear um, silicon sealant in the bathroom or white silicon sealant. Um, loads of ridiculous little decisions that have just been grabbing our attention and our focus. And, and I guess the question, the thing I've been wrestling with is, like, how much value should I, am I putting in this thing, in this house, in all these decisions I'm making? How much value am I giving them? How much value should I give them? What do we value? What value do we ascribe to things? Often I think we, we tend to trundle along um, without really reflecting on it, except for certain things, certain moments where it sort of, it, it surprises us. We suddenly start thinking about, well, what do I value? You know, it might be having a near miss um, sort of brings a fresh perspective on life. It might be key moments in your life. I, I remember um, when my dad died a couple of years ago, and it was a, it was a really sudden thing, and, and it throws you into this re-evaluation. What is important? What really is important? Or maybe it's, um, you know, having kids when our boys were born. It suddenly, it brings up priorities, doesn't it? It, it causes you to rethink your priorities. Maybe it's listening to other people. Um, last week, I was, um, I, uh, I'm the worship pastor here. I was leading worship at something for a charity called Open Doors, and they work with the persecuted church all around the world, uh, supporting them and helping them. And um, 
so I was leading worship at this thing, and um, we, it was with a band I play with here, and we'd had a sound check, and we all have these little headphones in. We're not just listening to some other music, we're listening to ourselves. Um, and um, anyway, we had our ears in, and we had a sound check, and it was just terrible. The sound was awful. And um, we came off feeling like, man, our lives are pretty hard. This is, you know, this is so irritating, so frustrated with the sound, everything, everything seemed wrong. And then we sat there and we listened um, to stories of people who um, had lost loved ones, people whose friends and families had been killed because of faith in Jesus, because of following Jesus. And it's one of those moments where you just think, what am I, what on earth was my problem? You reevaluate the significance of something in light of something else. Maybe um, you've seen the Antique Roadshow. Any, anyone watch Antique Roadshow? I'm not a regular, I've got to say. But um, if it's on every now and again, I'll catch it. And, um, but I love, I love those, those moments where someone brings something on. They have no idea of the value. And then they get it appraised, and it's completely different to what they expected. Um, there's a great one with um, an urn. I don't know if there's a picture coming up. This was uh, Terry Nourish had had this urn for years and years, and it had served in his household as a makeshift goalpost for his children's football games. Uh, so they'd just been kicking their football, bouncing off. And um, anyway, he took it to the roadshow, and he discovered that actually it was, from, it was an 1874 French piece, and he sold it for 668,000 pounds. 600, I imagine it's not used as a goalpost anymore. Um, there was this other one, another one, a paperweight um, that I think there's another picture coming up. Um, next one, there we go. This paperweight sat on a head teacher's desk in St. Ives, and um, I hadn't thought anything of it. Um, but what, I think one of the receptionists decided, oh, I'm just going to take it to the roadshow. It was coming to town, so they did, and. Um, they took it to the roadshow and were shocked to find that it was an original Barbara Hepworth sculpture valued at 750,000 pounds. Imagine it didn't sit around on the desk for much longer. And finally, I love this one. Um, in 2001, a couple went on with this ring that they found. And um, they found it when they were clearing away leaves in their front garden. They just saw it glinting in the sun. And um, it was a husband and a wife, and the wife thought it was um, like a Christmas cracker toy, you know, like you get those little rings out of Christmas cracker. So she thought that's what it was. And um, anyway, they hung on to it, and they took it to get it appraised, and it turned out to be a gold Anglo-Saxon ring, thought to be about 1,300 years old and worth 10,000 pounds. Could you imagine cleaning your garden out and then coming away with a 10,000 pound ring? Amazing. So in each case, so there's this sort of initial valuing and then a sort of re-evaluation of that same thing. And that re-evaluation changes things. You know, the urn is just unlikely to be used as a football post. The paperweight is unlikely to be left sitting around on a desk. The ring that looked like a Christmas cracker ring will now be treated with care. Realizing the value of something changes the way we are with that thing. But it starts with taking a second look, looking again. And I'd love this morning just to encourage us to look again at the person of Jesus. This might be your first time ever in church, maybe your first time here, and perhaps you've just discounted Jesus, just you know something from the past, something from primary school that you've sort of left there. 
or you may be a regular here, committed your life to following Jesus, loving Jesus, serving Jesus, whatever category, just love to encourage us this morning to look again. And I wanna do that by engaging with a passage, well-known passage from the Gospel of Luke. It's in the New Testament, in the Bible. And um, it's, actually re- it's actually a report. Uh, we're gonna read it from Luke, but it's in all four of the Gospels in the New Testament about a woman's encounter with Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, if you wanna to turn to Luke chapter seven, verse 36. Uh, it will be coming up on the screens if you, if you don't have them. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So it's an amazing story. extravagant and undignified. I wonder whether you can imagine it or picture it. A number of artists have tried to over the years. It clearly made an impact on the disciples because it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It clearly made an impact on Jesus. Um, he says in another passage, in another, one of the other Gospel versions of that, he says, wherever the Gospel goes, this woman's story will be told. Everywhere this gospel goes, this story will be told. He doesn't say that about anyone else. It's like he's saying, she's got it. This is important. She's understood. So we think this woman um, was Mary, who later sits at Jesus' feet. And commentators differ, but a number think that she may well have been a prostitute. The way the Pharisee refers to her, the way the text refers to her. She may well have been a prostitute. And uh, so Jesus reclines at the table in this religious leader's house, and this woman bursts in, and what we see, I think, is her estimation of the value of Jesus. And there's three things I wanna look at. The first is this, she sees Jesus as more valuable than riches. More valuable than riches. That perfume that she pours over Jesus' feet, that alabaster jar, one account says it was filled with nard and worth over a year's wages. Nard was um, 
this perfume, it was, it was rare, incredibly expensive. It was found in plant roots at the, um, that grew at the foot of the Himalayas in India. And so it had a long way to go through trade routes in order to get to Israel. So by the time it got there, it was worth a massive amount of money. In fact, one writer writing in that day says that it had foremost rank amongst perfumes. So the amount today, commentators reckon today's, in today's monetary value, it's probably worth about 20,000 pounds, this thing that she breaks over Jesus' feet. This um, version says she pours it, the, in one of the other gospels, it says she breaks it. She breaks this jar. There's no, no going back. There's no, um, it's not, this isn't a, she's not using it sparingly. She breaks this jar and pours the contents over Jesus, smashes it at his feet. And the disciples don't like it. They hate it. The Pharisees hate it. In Mark's gospel, it says this. Um, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And it says they rebuked her harshly. What a waste. In fact, the, the word that is used there for they rebuked her is that they, it, uh, it actually translates, they snorted. <laughs> They were so indignant, so filled with rage and the waste of this thing that they're snorting, they're so frustrated at what she's done. This extreme disapproval. They hate it. What a waste. But what does Jesus do? He defends her. He sets her up as a model. He affirms her. This was everything she had and she poured it over his feet. A number of commentators suggest that um, this is probably a, a tool that she used for her trade. Perhaps maybe it was a gift from a wealthy client and she breaks it at Jesus' feet. She recognized him as more valuable than the most precious of riches, the most expensive thing she had. And Jesus doesn't see it as waste. He sees it as worship. You know, it's interesting in, in um, Matthew's account of this and in Mark's account, the very next passage, the very next bit following this passage is Judah selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He sells Jesus for money. She gives everything she has for him. The contrast is so extreme. She saw, she saw Jesus as valuable above all she owned. To her, he was worth it all. I, um, I remember, I've talked about this before, but I remember losing my son, Reuben, when he was two um, at the beach here in Nottingham. You know, they have that summer beach in the center. And, um, and I'd just took, taken my eye off him for literally a moment in order to tie my other son's shoes. And um, anyway, I turned around and I couldn't find him. And I was terrified, I was running around. Absolutely, I, honestly, I can't, I don't think I've ever been as frightened as I was in that moment. It felt like, it felt like hours, it was probably between five and 10 minutes. All, looking everywhere, there's so many people there. And eventually, eventually I found him and the relief was palpable. I couldn't, I, honestly, I've never experienced something quite like that before. And um, I remember going into um, Pizza Express after that moment and thinking, and I remember thinking to myself, this, 
they could charge me a thousand pounds for this pizza and I just don't care. I just don't care because in comparison, money felt insignificant. In comparison, it felt insignificant. We live in a world where having stuff, riches, things, hoarding is celebrated, a materialistic culture. But even so, most of us recognize things that are more important, things that we would bankrupt ourselves for, things that we would remortgage our houses for, keeping loved ones who are sick alive, loved ones who are, who are lost found. We know what it is to value something or someone more than riches. And it's exactly what this woman is doing. The most expensive thing she has, the most precious thing she has, poured out at the feet of one who is incomparably more valuable. Have you ever seen Jesus as worthy of something like that? Have you ever seen Jesus as worthy of something like that? Secondly, she sees Jesus as more valuable than others' opinions. Um, in the passage, uh, we read that she comes into the house of a Pharisee. Um, it's clear that the Pharisee, this religious leader, uh, knows who she is and, and disapproves of her. They were, the Pharisees were sort of like the rule keepers, the religious elite. Uh, in many ways, she was uh, the enemy. She was a sinner. She knew she wasn't welcome, that she wasn't wanted. She knew that everyone's eyes and attention would be on her. Would have felt the weight of their disapproving and judgmental stares. And yet, she runs straight to Jesus and does it anyway. She kisses his feet, washing them with her tears, drying them with her hair. And it's actually such an amazing moment. Um, we don't always pick these things up in our context, but in that culture in that day, um, Women never let their hair down. They would have their hair covered at all times. It would never be seen by a man except for their husband in the context of marriage. A woman's hair would never be seen. It was their glory. A husband was the only man to see it. And yet we see her here letting her hair down and drying Jesus' feet with it. Feet that would have been covered with dust and dirt. It's so vulnerable, it's so intimate. She takes this precious thing, her hair, her glory, and she uses it for the most ignoble of purposes, washing someone's feet. It would draw stares, it draw criticism. She knows it and, it and it does. The others rebuke her, they hate it, they're disgusted. I wonder how she felt a prostitute going into the house where she wasn't welcome, falling at Jesus' feet in this way. It was humiliating in everyone's eyes, maybe even in her own eyes, but not in Jesus's. He affirms her. He celebrates what she's done, and he rebukes the others. Everywhere the gospel goes, this story will be told, he says. And in another passage, he says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She has got it. She just loses her inhibitions because of something so much more valuable. In that moment when I lost Reuben, I, 
um, in, the, in the city center, I, I, I remember running around and shouting and, you know, I would have looked like I'd lost it. I mean, to people looking at me, it, was, it would have been, you know, it's embarrassing and, and ridiculous. I was just running around like a nutter trying to, trying to find him, shouting for him. But I just didn't care. We lose our inhibitions when there's something so much more valuable. This last week uh, um, at this event with the persecuted church, I, there were so many stories of people who were hated, punished, imprisoned, beaten, socially outcast, financially penalized for faith in Jesus, and yet they were unmoved. They didn't care about the other opinions of them, what was socially and culturally appropriate. Such was the value they saw in Jesus. He's worth it all, they would say. Worth it all. And that's exactly what's going on here. She recognized something so very important about Jesus, something very much more valuable than others' opinions or what was socially appropriate. Have you ever seen Jesus as valuable to the extent that all other considerations become secondary? Have you ever seen him in that way? Finally, thirdly, she sees Jesus as more valuable than her sin and her shame. This is, um, this is where we begin to see not just that she valued Jesus or to what extent she valued Jesus, but crucially, why? Why did she, what did she see in him? Why was she, he more valuable than this precious gift? Let's read the, um, if you just turn again to Luke chapter seven, there's a little bit. Uh, where Jesus sort of uses a bit of a parable. And he says this. The the, uh, Pharisees are complaining about it, annoyed about it. And he says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And from verse 41, he says this. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. The reason that she's responding to Jesus in this way, in this, this radical, vulnerable, intimate amazing way. The reason why she's placing so much value on him is that she recognizes that in him she could find forgiveness. She knew her sin. She felt her shame and she recognized that there was forgiveness and acceptance in Jesus. I hope that she found nowhere else. In fact, um, throughout the Gospels, it's actually those who are rejected by society, tax collectors and sinners, it's, they're often called, who find themselves drawn to Jesus again and again and again. Not those who seem to have it all together, but those who don't. She wasn't the only one. Over and over we see it. She found a love that was bigger than her sense of sin and shame. And actually, her deepest need was met. What she came into contact with when she 
fell at Jesus' feet was the gospel. You know, there are so many different needs that vie for our attention. You know, the need in our house currently for running water, just a significant one. Um, the need for it, sometimes I feel the need for a cinnamon bun. I just sometimes need that. Um, or the need for a holiday. Um, or recently, uh, my in-laws just got back from uh, Uganda where they go a couple of times a year doing some, they run a charity out there. And, um, and in that context, you know, the needs are very much more immediate and desperate. But according to the Bible, the fundamental need of humanity is for relationship with God. The God who created us, knows us, made us to live for him, longs for relationship with us. It's our fundamental need. And the thing that gets in the way is our sin, our, our decision to do things our own way, to reject God. And the most important question really is this, how can that be dealt with? Where can that be dealt with? It's the reason that Jesus came to earth, why he died on the cross, why he rose from the dead, so that he could bear the weight of our sin, the penalty of our sin, so that we could be forgiven, that we could find hope and life and have relationship with God restored. And it's what the woman, it's the reason in this passage, it's what she found in Jesus. Forgiveness, freedom from shame. She found the God who so loved her that he sent his only son to die in her place. This is grace and it is the most valuable thing in the universe. I remember uh, reading this book, um, it's called What's So Amazing About Grace by a guy called Philip Yancey. And um, he tells a story in it, which I'm just gonna read. It's, it's, it's sort of long-ish, um, but hang in there. I think it just, it unpacks this notion of grace really well. So you might wanna close your eyes and just um, picture it as I read. He says this. It's a retelling of a story that Jesus told. A young girl grows up on, cherry orchard, on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she, she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan. She's mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. Newspapers report in lurid detail the gangs, drugs, and violence in downtown Detroit. So she concludes it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. Her second day there, she meets a man who buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that will make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. She's underage and so men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now just seem so boring that she can hardly believe she grew up there. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. Any money left goes to support her drug habit. She finds herself sleeping outside the big department stores. 
And one night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She shivers under the newspapers she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts, a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. She's sobbing, and more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three phone calls, three connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mum, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it will get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're there, if you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus. During her seven-hour journey, she wonders, what if her parents are out of town? What if they miss the message? Her thoughts bounce back and forth between her worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over and over. When the bus finally rolls into the station, the driver announces, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect. And not one of the thousand scenes that she has played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother. They're all wearing party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd breaks her dad. She looks through tears and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm so sorry. I know that... And he interrupts her. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. And so it is, Yancey writes, and Jesus says, and so it is with God's amazing grace. So often, like that girl, we wander off, we do our own things, and we feel like there's no way back. Church don't want me. It's for, those, it's for the people who get everything right. It's for the goody goodies. I'm too far from it. But the best news in the world, the gospel is this. You are never too far. It's not for the good. Christianity is not for the good. It's for those who admit that they, they're not good enough. They haven't got everything right. Those who just say, help me, I need you. The woman in the passage that we've been reading did exactly this. She realized her need. She realized that Jesus was the answer. And that no matter what life looked like, no matter how badly she got things wrong, that he would forgive her, that he would accept her. Like that runaway girl in the story, that there were open arms waiting at the bus station. So maybe you're here, I don't know, maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, I'm just not really sure he can forgive me. 
I'm just not really sure that he can forgive this thing. Or what about that thing? Or I can't escape the shame of this thing. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. But he can't forgive me. Yes, he can. Yes, he will. It's grace. And it's the most valuable thing in the world. So I wonder, what value have you placed on Jesus? I'd love to encourage you to look again. Whether you follow him currently or you don't, for all of us, just what about looking again? And maybe, like the woman in the passage, we'll begin to see something that we hadn't maybe seen before or something that perhaps we'd just forgotten. Perhaps like with that urn that was used as a football post, it's worth taking a second look. Maybe Jesus is more valuable than we ever realized. Maybe the urn is actually worth more than we first thought.